This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Han Ong read his story, Hammer Attack, from the January 16, 2023 issue of the magazine. Ong, the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and the Berlin Prize, is the author of more than a dozen plays and two novels, Fixer Chow and The Disinherited. Now here's Han Ong. Hammer Attack Three Virgin Marys kept their baleful eyes on the back of Alan's head, but more powers were needed of clemency of healing, so to accompany the dolorous mothers, somebody had also taped to the wall behind Alan's hospital bed half a dozen Jesuses, a few were laminated, the famous Last Supper painting, and a grave-looking figure who Alice, one of Alan's sisters, told Gina was St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes of last hope. I said to Gina, The school I went to in Manila was called St. Jude. It was next to the church, also called St. Jude, where hundreds of people went for Mass. St. Jude is a very popular saint with the Filipinos, I added, although if Gina hadn't asked and Alice hadn't told her, I would not have been hip to this figure's identity. It had been a long time since I'd given any thought to my boyhood, devoutness, obedience, my family. Alan was in some ways a kindred spirit. His one-word self-description at our first book group gathering was lapsed. What did he mean? You name it, I've lapsed. To much laughter, he enumerated, lapsed Christian, lapsed Korean, lapsed middle-class person, lapsed heterosexual. He was an unusual gay man, but maybe I was relying on stereotypes. He was young but chubby, unstylish, and prepossessing in appearance and manner. He wasn't the most talkative of the bunch of us, and he had a fondness for upspeak like a teenager. This was 2014, but for those of us who were the children of recent Asian immigrants, our parents' self-loathing put a check on visible difference, and this ensured a lot of closet cases, or at least overcautious, overwatchful young men and women. I was always on my guard. Still, I too said that I was gay. Alan's disclosure encouraged mine. Gina, whom I'd run into over the years at get-togethers of artsy Filipinos and who'd brought me to that first book club meeting, already knew, of course. 
Did I tell the others that, like Alan, I had fled a punitive faith, or that, like Alan, I was shrugging off the mantle of my parents' hard-won middle-classhood? Probably not, as I wanted to distance myself from Alan's plodding looks, his plaintive upspeak. We were twins in all ways but the most crucial one. You could have slapped me on a poster of smiling, handsome young gays, selling a sunny cruise or a seedy club. That was something I aspired to. Alan had two older sisters. Alice, a hospital administrator, had flown in from Philadelphia, and Ruth, who taught economics at a university from Texas. Ruth was going through a divorce against her parents' wishes, so she had now displaced Alan as the family disappointment. At the hospital, she was both the maker and the recipient of many angry divorce-related phone calls, and the latest one had taken her out of the room, leaving me alone with the Christian icons and Alan and his machine-assisted breathing. I walked back and forth in Alan's hospital room, making the laminated Jesus's wink and shimmer. I turned the patient into a blur. Not that Alan was alarming. The surprise on my first visit had been just how unalarming he looked, the neatly bandaged head, the peaceful face and body. Only the words passed along secondhand by the family alarmed me. Brain swelling, induced coma. Somebody had taken great pains, and Alan's face was moisturized, his fingernails and toenails trimmed. A new, pale yellow pair of pajamas covered his body. I had worried about being left alone with the mother or the father, but they were at a nearby hotel after having stayed for three days and three nights without sleep. Ruth had had to put her foot down for them to agree to take a break. By all appearances, she was the family powerhouse, and her impending divorce only strengthened this impression. Of course, someone so authoritative would be impossible to live with. Her soon-to-be ex was white, and their two children were academic high achievers. Alice, with whom Gina had struck up a friendship, said that Ruth had tolerated her husband's years-long affair until she couldn't any longer. This was necessary talk, anything to divert attention from the comatose patient. Ruth's husband's mistress was also Korean and taught at the same university. The husband, too, was employed by the university. A cozy circle, the affair an open secret among colleagues. There was no glee in this gossip when Gina passed it on to me and the rest of the book group, Harry and Linda and Abby and Govinder and Sheila and Sunil and Kyunghee and Jin. Instead, there was a sense of duty of filling out our threadbare knowledge of Alan, not letting him down. Already, death was the unspoken presumption among us. Already, we were deep in the practice of memorialization. Alan, you quit your copywriting job to train as a social worker. You were much admired, quietly admired. We were not a corny bunch, or your downscale life would have been properly honored. You told very few jokes, and your literary analyses never set fire to anyone's mind. But you were a talented eater, ordering for us after our book group sessions in the nonprofit office in Koreatown, in one nearby restaurant after another, and placing second orders despite our false protests. Down to the last grain of rice, the final bead of soup, your bowls were the cleanest. Such a love of life, such a belly. It was hard to believe that your very Asian parents 
would not have found this part of you at least worthy of praise. The Buddha imposture. The things we regret. Backslapping you for your appetite for how much beer you could put away in one sitting was fake bonhomie, camaraderie at its shallowest. Ruth returned and exclaimed, He moved, she said. His head moved. It was on one side when I took my call, and now it's on the other. Right? Am I right? I gave an embarrassed shrug. She approached him. Hey, buddy, she said, taking his hand in hers and kneading, bossy and tender. Hey, buddy, we're here. Mom and Dad and Alice and me. And guess who else is here? Roger, your book group friend, Roger. Say hi, Roger. Hi, Alan. I'm visiting. I hope it's okay. And your other book group friends? They've dropped in many times. They can't wait to talk books with you again, right? She turned to me. That's right. Me thinking, so bossy, so moving. Show of hands, who's seen the video of the attack, which took place as Alan waited for a train on the subway platform? All hands went up, hands up, but heads bowed, for the shame of not having been able to resist watching. Thank God the footage was grainy. The violence could be somewhat softened in our fuzzy viewings into a mercifully amateur blow, a mere grazing of Alan's person, although, of course, there was a medical outcome to prove us wrong. A portion of Alan's skull had had to be cut free to allow space for the blooming, swollen brain. I watched until the thing hit him, Jin whispered, not able to say hammer. The hammer hit him on his head, his knees buckling immediately. I didn't reveal that I'd viewed the footage more than once, more than twice. The perpetrator's back was to the camera, and he was wearing a roomy coat, the unbuckled belt looped around the waist, the only indication that it was not a sheet, so I couldn't even excuse my morbid curiosity by claiming to be playing detective. None of us mentioned the probable race of Alan's attacker. Witnesses had noted that he was a black man, Time and time again, in other similar incidents, two salient facts, the attacker's race, most often black, and the victims, always Asian, were soon supplanted by another even more salient fact. The attackers were by and large mentally disturbed men who'd left a trail of past strikes, who'd been caught, locked up briefly, then set loose. It was not that difficult to supply a homely for their stories, a system of rescue and rehabilitation of our human responsibility to one another had failed and would fail yet again. We were good liberals, good Asians, allies. None of us would speak on the ugliness of one oppressed race going after another. We were waiting for confirmation of our certainties, our hope. It was derangement that had prompted this act, not prejudice or rather derangement unto prejudice, not solely prejudice. We were not our full complement for that emergency meeting after the attack. Linda was too pregnant to attend. Govinder was working a late-night paralegal shift in Midtown. Sheila and Sunil were still COVID-cautious. I reported on the progress of no progress. Alan's condition had not deteriorated. Living a few blocks from the hospital, I was the group's designated representative. In two weeks... I was an eight-time visitor. The next most frequent was Gina, with four visits. We spoke of the lack of connection between our book group and Alan's social work colleagues, whom we sometimes encountered at the hospital. 
Once we had remarked on the tragedy, our conversations with them petered out. The social workers had the last word. How hateful that this had happened to Alan, of all people, who advocated so patiently for his transient populations, his share of the city's disturbed flotsam. One of the co-workers did us all the favor of voicing the unthinkable. Could one of the homeless men Alan counseled have committed the assault? Could it have been personal, not random at all? This was said to Gina out of earshot of the family. The co-worker had put the cops on notice. It was hard to say which scenario was worse, but Gina and I hoped that it had been random so that Alan's parents could not say that he had courted violence with his choice of profession. I waited on word that the parents had gone back to the Delaware suburbs before I returned to the hospital. They were much like my own parents, Easter Island faces, intimidatingly svelte figures, not an ounce of fat between them, especially emotional fat, deprivers, admonishers, a type common among our parents and grandparents. With us, Alan's friends, they'd been warm up to a point. Their smiles acknowledged that we were more important than they were in Alan's world. Not once did the parents ask us, how could this have happened? The sisters also did not ask. This free-floating violence had been in New York for a while. It had become our weather. Also, uncharacteristically, they had not blamed Alan for putting himself in a vulnerable position. Though older Asian women were the primary victim demographic, Asian men had not been spared. We had suffered box-cutter slashes across arms and chests, punches to the face. There was no logic other than opportunism. To be singled out was not necessarily to be seen as weak, without fight. In fact, the one renowned retaliator had been an old Chinese woman whose rage and quick thinking had transformed her walking stick into a weapon. Digital cheers had greeted the news footage of her attacker, a white man, being carried on a stretcher into an ambulance. His look of utter discombobulation, of not having been remotely prepared for the tables to turn, was the sweetest revenge. Not that the old woman was spared. To regard the photograph of her one Picasso eye encircled by a liver-colored, liver-sized bruise was to stop the cheer dead in our throats. This attack had occurred in San Francisco, a city that was similarly living in fear. In another time, another place, Alan's gayness might have put him in danger, although of course with him, as with me, there was no tell. Still, this was one of our potential vulnerabilities, which we'd forgotten, living in New York, freed by New York. Actually, Alan's parents scared me. Was it okay to say this? They had the tiniest faces, which refused to give anything away. In their bedside vigil, they reminded me of twin pieces of tomb statuary. They seemed to be draining light from the room. Their bodies were not tensed with the effort of willing good news, but appeared to me to be actively ushering in a funeral. Their hope, foolish as it sounded, was for death. Their vision was filled with death. Above all else, they wanted to be proved right about this country, about their son, who had gone against their gospel twice in his job and in his sexuality. Maybe more than that. Maybe Alan's tubbiness concealed a core of steel. Maybe he drew energy from his transgressions against the family rule. Why not continue to disappoint your parents and live, Alan? Live. Mostly, 
I feared his parents' X-ray eyes. They could see that I was one Asian gay keeping another Asian gay company, our fates mirrored. The frequency of my visits compared with those of Alan's other contemporaries. This was a clue you did not need X-ray vision to decode. But the sisters were discreet. They could have asked if Alan and I had been lovers, an understandable assumption given how many times I visited. I saw myself, as they likely did, as a character in a story. What is the connection between these two people? What do the visits mean? There was a time when I would have been outraged by the suggestion that I might be romantically linked to someone like Alan. But now, nothing was too far-fetched. If COVID had been a giant upender of life's order, this new regime of fear was even more despotic. At the hospital, I was not able to look Alan in the face, and though staring at his tender pajamas was in a way worse, my eyes usually settled on his legs, the largest unmoving part of him, and his exposed toes the tenderest sight of all. According to Ruth, the nurse had encouraged freeing his toes from the blanket every so often because doing so promoted a more restful, deeper sleep, something borne out by the tabulating machine's bedside, breath, pulse, heart rate, brain activity. Alice came to relieve Ruth and me. The two of us had learned to sit quietly together, to not be disturbed by the silence. We went to the large cafeteria on the ground floor. We ran into one of Alan's doctors, who repeated the report she had just made to Alice. Alan's brain swelling seemed to be going down, but since it was still a matter of millimeters, it would take a few more days to have a definitive answer. The coma would be reversed once the brain was back to normal, if all of Alan's vitals held. Ruth was flying home at the end of the week. She and Alice would then alternate, each staying in New York City for a week at a time. I was surprised by Ruth's revelation that their parents had been banished from the hospital. This was because they had talked endlessly of Alan's death, of flying the body back to Korea, burying it in a family cemetery that nobody had heard of. How shockingly close had come to the truth. These people were indeed carrion birds, actively waiting for death. Ruth told me with a sigh, At least they didn't say what they would normally say in a situation like this. We should never have come to America. I told her about Manila, a bastion of hardline Christianity and Catholicism. I told her about my lapsed Catholicism, how much Alan and I had in common two former advertising copywriters who had quit within a year of each other. Like Alan, I had downsized into a trickier New York existence, the life of a writer. Ruth made a joke about the danger of revealing things to a writer and then revealed them anyway. There was no question that she would fight for full custody of the children, even with no sympathy from her parents who disapproved of her very public failure. An idea occurred to her on the way back upstairs, Maybe I would read to Alan? She didn't need to explain. This was now common lore. Patients in comas responded to sound. Talking to the medically unconscious was a way of massaging their brains into recognition of the present moment, the suspended vitality, the sunshine through the foliage. It would better prepare them to hold up their end of the conversation when they awakened. This was romantic, foolish, meaningful. This was something I could do better than just sitting there staring dumbly at nothing. Of course, I knew immediately what the book would be, 
The Makioka Sisters by Junichiro Tanizaki. We had been drawn to our book club as an opportunity to rekindle a relationship with our parents' cultures. Our breakthrough, which arrived in our mid-thirties after decades of avoidance and shirking, of not wanting to be seen as Asian, had been to admit that, yes, it was our culture too. Softened by our own aging and by our parents' mortality, we had decided to go back to informal school, a curriculum of Asian and Asian American literature voluntarily subscribed to, diligently cultivated, for some of us, joyously so. We'd read Kawabata, Sunil's favorite, Amy Tan, loved mainly by the women in the group, Teresa Hak Kyung Cha, deemed too experimental by most of us, Osamu Dazai, too existential, Mishima, no one's favorite. And then Alan had suggested the Tanizaki, to which we devoted three consecutive months, breaking the book up into roughly 150-page sections. Our regard for the book had not carried over to its recommender. Alan remained the schlubby attendee whose literary insights were strictly middle-of-the-road unexciting. Count on Sunil and Kyung-hee to light up the room with their dashing analyses, yoking contemporary references to a novel set in Japan in the 30s and 40s, and electrifying our view of prose that could sometimes seem too serene, too well-behaved. Sunil worked in publishing, and Kyung-hee held a master's in English. The book club had been their brainchild. Gina had spotted an announcement on a bulletin board at Hunter College, where she worked in enrollment admin. And since I was struggling to write a novel, she had encouraged me to go, to take my mind off my own efforts and dip back into book love. Maybe a flyer had also found its way to Alan's social agency office, or maybe he'd eyed a notice at a Koreatown joint, and since the meetings were only a few doors away, figured why not drop in? To read The Makioka Sisters was to be taken into a glamorous fantasy of Japan, what is often referred to as a vanished way of life, though there were fault lines in the novel's pristine surfaces that made it more than a mere touristic stroll. The family at the center of the story was caught between eras, between national and societal modes of being. It was fracturing. Leading the charge toward the uncertain future was the youngest sister, Taiko, her name, unfortunately, for a Tagalog speaker like me, was pure comedy. To a Filipino, Taiko meant my shit. Honestly. Gina, though Filipino too, spoke no Tagalog. She had been born in California and had never gone to the Philippines. She had to be told of the translation, the rude joke. It was she who encouraged me to reveal this fun fact to the group and it was Sunil who diffused the group chagrin by saying that, if you thought about it, my shit was an appropriate tag for Taiko, who owned up to her crap as the clan troublemaker. Her heedless love life derailed the family's need to see Taiko's older sister married before she herself could be paired off. She was the beloved family rebel of our own romantic self-projections. For a session or two, this comedy of cultures had made me an improbable book group standout, and Sunil and Kyung-hee encouraged me to contribute more of my opinions and thoughts. Of course, on most subjects, I remained circumspect. They knew that I was gay and that I was a writer. But nobody, not even Gina, was privy to my writing. For two weeks following my cafeteria lunch with Ruth, 
I did not go back to the hospital. I tapped the grapevine for updates. The brain swelling had not yet reduced enough to reverse Alan's coma, to wake him up to his changed world. The perpetrator remained at large, stoking everyone's fears that he would find another victim. I was avoiding keeping my promise to Ruth to read to Alan. I was also not at my apartment. I was alternating between Gina's place in Midtown East near Hunter and Abby's on the Lower East Side. My pact with both women was to be the hedge against violence. Gina texted me when she left work and I walked a few blocks to escort her home. Abby always made sure to text when she was a few subway stops away so that I could meet her outside the turnstiles. Both women paid me in takeout and Netflix. Writing was the most portable of endeavors, and Gina and Abby joked that I could forgo my rent and make a traveling circuit of our friends' apartments, serving as the subway escort, the nighttime walker, the muscle protector. A new twist on the rom-com? A supposedly gay man falls for the female friend he sleeps next to to assuage her fears of attack and also to make COVID days bearable. The movie pitches wrote themselves, at least they did to Gina, cackling. Your talents are wasted at Hunter, I said. Still, Gina was the most self-reliant of women, and for her to have to request my help, I understood that some threshold of peeve had been crossed, some unspoken anger at Asian female accommodation overcome yet again. Did she have to hit the racial bullseye so squarely, being physically slight, seemingly defenseless? How could anyone looking at her possibly imagine her daily fury? The news did not stay remote, a world apart as it should. It had swept up one of our own, and every day that did not end in screaming rage for a member of our group was a small triumph. As for myself, I exchanged my regular gym locker lock for a whopper of steel, nearly the size of a fist and weighty enough to qualify as workout equipment, and placed this in my tote to weaponize it. Also, like a lot of my friends, I took to wearing a baseball cap and to concealing my eyes behind large dark glasses. The windows that I passed reflected this new creature, at once aghast and glamorous, a movie star not quite used to being stalked, jumpy with presentiment. I had not bought pepper spray as Linda and Abby and Sheila and Kyung Hee and Jin and Gina had, though not everyone had researched tutorials for its use. I also hadn't bought a whistle, unlike Sunil and Kyung Hee and Jin, and definitely not a switchblade, which would have been a greater danger for my fingers than for any attacker. But Govinder now carried one, and Sunil said that one was in his online cart waiting for him to finalize its purchase. Ditto Harry. Our book club started up again after a two-year COVID break. Of course, we were still in the midst of COVID, or maybe we were at its tail end, or maybe that was merely the human disease of hope. For our first discussion, we decided to meet in Koreatown at a restaurant with an open-air sidewalk shed, as long as the structure's traffic side had a boarded window so that we were not in easy reach of a would-be attacker. We were missing some people, Linda due to deliver any day, Abby at her self-defense class, Govinder dealing with family issues, Sheila still COVID-hesitant, although Sunil had agreed to come. We were planning to discuss the first hundred pages or so of the Makioka sisters. We did this every once in a while, brought back beloved books, counting on time to be a co-participant, to deepen our rereading sometimes to reverse meanings. 
We had voted on the Makioka sisters even before the attack on Alan. I waited until the end of our session to tell the others about my promise to Ruth to be Alan's bedside reader. What a great idea, Kyung Hee said. How far have you gotten? Sunil asked. I haven't. I'm thinking of starting tomorrow. I think I'll do it too, Sunil said. Is that okay? The more the merrier, I said. Let me look at my calendar, Kyung Hee said. I'd like to read to him too if I can. Me also, Gina said. She and I exchanged smiles. Alice was at the hospital when I got there. I briefly explained the reading plan, and before she left to take a break, she turned serious. Do you think the guy will ever be caught? She asked me. What have the cops said? I haven't been talking to them directly. They set us up with this liaison, an Asian-American community woman. She's been great and frank. What did she say? Any additional day that he remains free, the chances of him getting caught are slimmer. It's been a month. Cases like Alan's, they don't usually take this long to get resolved. Did they look into Alan's contacts? I asked. Nothing there, Alice said. Thank God. Thank God. I asked her about the precautions she was taking. She shrugged off my concern. I'm either here or at the hotel. It's three blocks away. I don't even see the hotel most days. I sleep here. I eat here. I live my remote life here. I'll get you a whistle, I said. She was skeptical. What would a whistle do? Buy you time, flag attention, scare the guy off? She seemed taken aback. You've really thought about it. It was my turn to shrug. I'd got to page 20 of the Makioka sisters by the time she came back. She sat and listened for ten more pages. Ruth told me you're a writer? Yes. This must be good for you too, she said, being reminded how stories work, hearing sentences... I told her that it was a pleasure to have Tanisaki's sentences, short, direct for the most part, in my mouth. But unfortunately, for me at least, there was nothing to learn from the mastery of someone like Tanisaki. He was like Chekhov, writers of life, geniuses of life, their prose often likened to a windowpane, transparent, artless, nothing to distract from the character's thinking, feeling, living. The accomplishment was in how much Tanizaki knew, in his store of human foibles and strengths, in the way he allowed his characters to display both. There was no style but life, no syntax but life, its logic and illogic, its ebb and flow. To learn from Tanizaki, a writer might as well park himself on a public bench and observe all passers-by. I looked over to see Alice crying. I had much to overcome before I could pat her on the shoulder. I'm sorry, she said. It's just, it's so wonderful that my brother has such smart friends. I love that for him. And then, like a Tanizaki character, like a Chekhov character, she crumpled and was full of despair, saying, What if he never wakes up? I said, I know he will. It was a lie. I left my copy of the book at the hospital. Those who wished to read to Alan would not have to worry about lugging their volume back and forth. My hardback came with a ribbon sewn into the binding to be used as a bookmark. Readers knew where to pick up from and knew to place the ribbon for the next reader. Alice was reading to Alan a few pages at a time. Ruth was too when she was there. Both had started reading the book themselves. I suppose that they were trying to find their brother in it, that we all were. 
and because I had started this group project of digging a connecting tunnel between the patient and his book group selection, I felt the unwelcome weight of responsibility. Still, I had a sense that by ministering to Alan with the Tanizaki, I was planting a flag against the competing claims of the Christian icons overlooking his bandaged head, hoping to reabsorb him, though since I knew all about deep renunciations, I doubted the icons had a chance. But who's to say? A hammer blow could knock you back a lifetime. You could wake up to find all your adult affiliations erased and yourself restored to childhood innocence, childhood stupidities. I slowed down my readings of the more sensuous passages, the beauty of the Makioka sisters, nature descriptions, cherry blossoms, mentions of food, especially the food. I reread those sentences to Alan, turning them into a kind of song or prayer, calling him back to the safety of his former personality, a hearty eater, perhaps a heartbroken sublimator. I grew less ashamed and less self-conscious about my limited knowledge of Alan's life. I discussed none of this with the other members of the group. By the time I returned to the hospital, the readers had progressed to page 167. I was relieving Ruth this time. I could not, for the life of me, get to page 169. I was distracted by Alan's exposed toes. I put the book down and focused on my obsession. This seemed appropriate given that I was reading from a book that had many descriptions of body parts and physical features of clothes and shoes being put on and taken off. Soon I was moved to touch Alan's toes. I didn't even check to see if the coast was clear. Some fragrance came off them, confirming my hunch that somebody was taking special care. I sniffed my fingers, something citrusy, also medicinal. I still could barely glance at Alan's face. The toes were safe, and to them I stuck. I rubbed, pulled them, rotated them individually, and then two or three together. I told myself that I was helping his blood to circulate, and also it was a way of talking, although what exactly my communication amounted to I couldn't say. I thought of the toes as fat children. They effused health, aliveness. They reminded me of sumo wrestlers whose habits and corpulence gave them the unintended benefit of the softest skin. Ruth caught me in the act. She had been observing for a while before she spoke up. Don't stop, she said, laughing. I do that too. The group assembled at Kyung Hee's Upper West Side apartment. Once again, we were not all there. We were resigned to incomplete numbers for the foreseeable future. Kyung Hee's two small children were being kept busy in their bedroom by a new animated movie, and her husband was out with friends. The attacker had been caught. Kyung Hee thought that it might be a good idea for us to lay eyes on him for the first time as a group, to help one another absorb, as Abby called it, all the feelings. Being a news junkie, Kyung Hee had already seen the video of the arrest. It was the standard footage of a handcuffed suspect being taken out of the back of a police car and walked into the precinct house. Unlike the subway video, this one was Ouija bright, she said. Kyung Hee did her best to prepare us. She queued the video up not on her large screen TV, but on a tiny iPad she had set up on the kitchen counter. The occasion called for a reduction. Despite the grimness, there was Chinese takeout, there was wine. Wait, Gina said, so is he black? She asked Kyung Hee, is the guy black? Yes, Kyung Hee said. He'd been arrested in Philadelphia. He'd used a knife this time. 
His most recent victim was not Asian, but another black man he'd fought with while waiting in line at a soup kitchen. He'd followed his antagonist to a park bench and stabbed him twice. He had on the same coat he wore in the video from the subway platform. He carried a New York ID. Also, there had been slightly hazy security cam shots of him fleeing the subway attack, and the height and physiognomy and hair all seemed to match. Wait, Gina said, I can't do this. I've already hated so much. I don't want to add more hate. I'm sorry. To my surprise, I agreed with Gina, and since we were the only abstainers, Kyung Hee walked us to her home office and shut the door for us. We engrossed ourselves in the impressive library. The view from Kyung Hee's desk was of the phasing brownstones. This was not our first time there. There had been book group sessions that Kyung Hee had hosted previously when she'd had the apartment to herself, her husband taking the children to visit her in-laws while she was chained to the academic calendar, unable to get away. We'd paid the proper tributes to her lovely home, laughed about the looks some of us received in the elevator from the other tenants. It was that kind of building. Are you going to visit Alan tomorrow? Gina asked. I wasn't planning to. Because I was there just now? And somebody should redo the few pages I read, if you can call what I did reading. Who was there, Alice? Ruth. I don't think she likes me. What makes you say that? Doesn't she ice you out? Oh, I see. She's one of those women. She does better with men than women. I don't know about that, I said. Why was your reading so bad? I kept getting distracted. I waited with some excitement for Gina to reveal her toe fetish so that I could share my own. Sometimes I believe the reading is working, she said. I see a twitch on his face and I think this is him about to stir. This spasm has deeper implications. But sometimes I think, what am I doing reading a book about Imperial Japan to a Korean man reading a book by a colonizer? Gina, the book was Alan's suggestion. By the time it was his turn to pick, we'd had our third Korean book in a row and also we just lifted the no Japanese for a while rule. What else was he going to choose? He could have picked something Chinese. This was the time when China was suppressing the Hong Kong protests. We weren't going to touch China for a while, remember? Something Filipino? Come on, Gina said. Even I can't name a Filipino novel to save my life. So he didn't say anything in our discussions about why he chose Tanizaki? I asked. Do you remember anything? Okay, I said, capitulating. Maybe I'm doing this for me. I love the book. I feel like I looked at Alan a different way after we were through with it. I remember thinking, good on you, Alan. This didn't satisfy Gina, who continued to sulk. You don't have to read, I told her. You can just sit with him. Also, maybe you can plan your visits to coincide with Alice's so you don't see Ruth. What happened to the parents? I explained the parental death watch to Gina. In the middle of my comedy spiel, I froze. Every day that Alan remained unconscious was a day when the parents emerged more into the light as seers, soothsayers, the inevitable funeral, the burial in a family plot in faraway Korea, Alan stolen from us a second time. I started crying right in the middle of Kyung Hee's ridiculously swanky home office. I'm not someone to go on crying jags, just as suddenly as I started, I stopped. Are you okay? 
I shrugged. Do you want to stay over at my place? I shrugged. Have you noticed? What? I asked. Nothing, she said. It's stupid. Were you going to mention Alan's toes? What? Forget it, I said. Toes? I was going to say, have you noticed that Alan has the most handsome face, that he has the smoothest skin? Toes? Really? Are you being serious? You never look at his toes? Why would I? You're such a weirdo. She took only a moment's rest. Toes? Now I'm not going to be able to stop myself from looking. But wait. I never thought of Alan as handsome before, but today? Now it was her turn to cry. All this emotion was disgusting, this rain of feeling, fear the least of it. Kyung-hee was at the open door. Everything okay? Give us a minute, I said. We returned to a glum group. None of them would speak about what they had seen. Kyung-hee threw out a handful of dates for our discussion of the next installment of the Makioka sisters. The venue would be Koreatown again, the same restaurant with the outdoor shed. Gina and I had our jackets on and were milling with the group at the threshold when Kyung-hee asked us to stay behind. Just checking up on you, she said, making sure you're okay. Just emotional, Gina said. You're sure you don't want to watch the video? I mean, before you leave, with me here, no pressure, no judgment? I'm sure, Gina said. I guess we'll have to eventually. I don't mean have to, I don't know what I mean. Sometime in the future, but not now. Understood, Kyung-hee said. Tell Kyung-hee what you just told me, Gina said. What? Get out of here, I'm taking her home, I said to Kyung-hee. Good, I'm glad, but Kyung-hee would not let me off so easy. What did you tell Gina? Tell her, Gina said. Nothing, I said to Kyung-hee. Note to self, this is clearly not a safe space, I added, smiling. Tell her, Gina repeated. I sighed, just that I couldn't stop staring at Alan's toes. It was a totally innocent remark, the most innocent of remarks. Oh, my God. Kyung-hee did the thing with her hands in front of her mouth to contain her laughter. You too? My smile was so wide. See, I said to Gina, I'm not the only one. It's not so weird. He has the best toes, Kyung-hee said. She was partly shocked, mostly happy. Doesn't he? Aren't they, I don't know, kind of delectable? Obviously, I don't mean delectable. Beautiful. And obviously, again, I don't mean beautiful. Or do I? Charismatic. Is it wrong to call somebody's toes charismatic? Kyung-hee said. Weirdos, Gina said. All this time surrounded by weirdos and I was clueless. Yet she was laughing, reluctantly at first, but soon we three were all more or less on the same wavelength. Kyung-hee was laughing so hard that she had to close the door momentarily so the sound wouldn't carry into the hallway. And then Gina stopped laughing, gradually, not suddenly. There was nothing to flag the change. Meanwhile, Kyung-hee said to me, you're so bad. You're the worst, encouraging me like this. I can't help it, I replied. Every time I visit, there they are, his toes, being aired. That's how Ruth says one of the nurses described it. And because the levity had been calling for this moment, I revealed that I had even touched the toes. You what? Gina said. She was the picture of calm, but the volume of her voice was unmistakable. Her next utterance was even louder. I'm so glad this thing happened to Alan so that both of you could know that he has the best toes. 
The calm, it turned out, was anger. What? Kyung Yi said. Nothing, I said very quickly, meaning disregard her, meaning she didn't mean it. I was more perturbed than I let on. To Gina, I was a lost cause. Who but me would so casually reveal that I'd handled our unconscious friend's body? But Kyung Hee was our group's designated grown-up, and to witness me swaying her into laughter was suddenly too much. Gina had also succumbed to my seductions, but no more. She was rescinding all complicity. If the joke, if indeed it was a joke, was going to rest on Alan, she would not play any part in it. Gina, we're sorry. Shock, hurt, contrition were on Kyung Hee's face. I'm taking you home, I said to Gina. I didn't diffuse the anger. Best to leave it in the air to clear itself. Or maybe I was a coward. Or it could even have been relief that I was feeling. From the moment of Alan's hospitalization, we had been passing a ball from hand to hand, and nobody had had the courage to throw it down on the ground until now. I patted Kyung Hee's arm to communicate solidarity, to say my goodbye. On the subway, Gina allowed me to lace the fingers of my hand over her fingers. At some point, she started squeezing, and at some point after that, it was clear that she was not returning my affection. My fingers were turning white. She meant to cause me pain, or at least discomfort. I knew that only an audible cry from me would satisfy her. I closed my eyes. I thought, I can take this. Yes, I was silently saying to her, I deserve the pain. But mostly, I did not want to give Gina the pleasure of seeing me flinch. I stared straight ahead. It was night, but I had on my habitual sunglasses and baseball cap. That was Han Ong reading his story, Hammer Attack. This is his fifth story in The New Yorker. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Gary Steingard reads Omakase by Waiki Wang. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.